Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I am Lemuel. And this week we're taking on North by Northwest. It's number four. Number four mm-hmm. on the yeah. list. We're almost done. Oof. That's insane. This is a 1959 Alfred Hitchcock joint because it's Alfred Hitchcock from here to Tuesday. And it stars Cary Grant. It stars Eva Marie Saint. It stars James Mason. And Yes, a very young, tall Martin Landau. He's very tall in so, general. He's always sort of stooped over to be in the same frame as some of his co-stars. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock gets his cameo out of the way during the credits. So, this movie... What's your history with this movie? I saw it once quite a long time ago, and then I didn't ever see it again. Because there's so <laughs> many other Hitchcock movies to watch. This is kind of a crowd pleaser. Interesting. And so, it's like, if I want to see dark Hitchcock, I'll watch something like Psycho or... Frenzy, which is just dark. Mm. And if I want to watch something that's more like pleasing, it'll be oh, the Thirty Nine Steps, or or maybe something like this. But oh, I really prefer. I like the, a Rear Window. The rear oh, Window is really good. that's a good one. Fun. But I mean, Vertigo, for instance, veers into the almost like the psycho territory. Yeah, so yeah. That's really disturbing. We, well, I saw it once, and I hated Jimmy Stewart, and I'm never saying it again. Right. That's what I've decided. What's yeah, your so, history? Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw it once before. I don't. Remember when, I want to say my mid-twenties, so like 15 plus years ago, mm-hmm. maybe 20 years ago. Hi, I'm old. We watched it again the other day, did not enjoy the watch, which is going to be controversial because this is number four on the list, which means I presume that people think it's great. And I wanted to punch Cary Grant in every frame so, of this film. <laughs> should we do a review? Because there, there's just, it's not a film. It is not. It is a set piece and a set piece. And a, it's like fast, the Fast right. and the Furious and, movies. And this is, the reasoning behind this is that Ernest Lehman, who was a writer who wrote some wonderful movies, including The Sweet Smell of Success, yeah. which is a great film. You should see that one at some point. Okay. Um, and, uh, I give him, I'll give him a second chance because right. it wasn't him I hated. It was Cary Grant's face. Well, Ernest Lehman wrote, uh, was a writer. Mm-hmm. He had, on the basis of The Sweet Smell of Success, he winds up being called in Hitchcock's office. He gets a hall, uh, office on the hallway for him. They're adapting um, a nautical story about a lost ship that was very popular at the time, Record of Mary Dear. And Hitchcock is supposed to direct it, but Lehman does not have... I, I think he got lost in the nautical details about the ship mm-hmm. and all the other like, things. Like, right. like Melville in, in the Moby Dick, where you're like, you were telling a story! Right. <laughs> we're lost in the sauce with what you could do with blubber! I need you to bring it back in! I think that was part of the issue, is that you just like, there's all these nautical details about the agencies involved when a ship gets lost and and I saw the finished product because it was not done by Hitchcock and not written by Lehman that was done much uh, done a little bit later and I liked that movie it was okay um but anyhow Lehman <clears throat> told Hitchcock um we have this film we're supposed to do and I cannot get my head into this film because it doesn't make any sense right. so Hitchcock told him well I have this other idea for a film oh this doesn't... Oh, we're not talking about this one. No, 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 I'm right. talking about this one. No, this doesn't make any this, sense. This goes to explain why it doesn't okay, make any sense. gotcha. So Hitchcock goes, what we'll do is I, I want to start with a, a man giving a speech to the United Nations, okay? He's giving a speech to the United Nations, and he says... He's, we're panning out to the audience, and he says, I would, I'm not going to stop speaking until the gentleman from Peru please wakes up. And he's fallen asleep during this man's speech. So the page goes up to shake... The gentleman from Peru. Oh, no, the gentleman from Peru is dead. And he falls over with a knife in his back. <laughs> okay, we get that scene-ish. And, and <laughs> so immediately he's like, death, murder at the UN. Oh, I can do this. And the layman came up with something like 60 pages almost right away. He just sat there began writing, writing, That's writing, an writing, hour. writing, 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 um, And the problem was that there was no final act to the film. And uh, Hitchcock eventually just admitted to him, well, I'd like to do a chase scene on Mount Rushmore. He's like, Fine. And he's going, well, Honestly, how do we get to Mount Rushmore? High point in the film. Not going to lie. High point in the film. You know what, what else is a high point in the film? Eva Marie Saint. Yes. James Mason. Fantastic. I, um, now, here's the other thing. So the reason why the film is so disjointed is that... Cary Grant makes terrible decisions from Go. Well, it's not Cary Grant's fault because Hitchcock and Lehman got together. I mean, it's obviously. Roger right. Thornhill makes terrible decisions. They, From the word they go. got together and they wanted to make, and Lehman's told Hitchcock, I want to make the perfect Hitchcock movie, just a thrill ride from beginning to end, which this film is. It's like he just gets from one scrape until the other. Yeah, because and, he makes right terrible decisions. So they were coming up with set pieces, right. like the crop dusting uh, airplane with, yeah. that has a gun mounted on it. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> because of course it does. 
the uh, you could just dump the he dumps right. the pesticides on him. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty good. But there was a bunch of scenes put together, and Lehman's job is going. Okay, now that we have all of our thrills, how do we connect them? And apparently, the only way to connect them is to have the dumbest man have a guy just stumble continuously and never regain his footing all throughout the film. Literally. Okay, you guys. <laughs> Roger Thornhill. Self-important ad man. Ad man, yes. Think madman. That's that's the Yes. Guy. Proud to be drunk by, you know, 5.30 at the latest. He's nice to his mother, though. We see, Mother's well, not so nice to him. Can we stop also talk, calling our moms dear and love? Because it's upsetting. Also, the woman that played his mom, was she younger than Cary no, Grant was? was? a few years older, but less Are than Are you sure? Yeah. He was 55 in this yeah. movie. I just was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, though. In fact, I'm looking it up because I do not believe that. It was he was eight years older than him, and so uh, Robert Osborne mentioned that, and he says, "Well, you know, it was a very young pregnancy for her, supposedly." I'm trying. Yeah, I'm looking. Okay, she was born in 1896, so yeah, eight years younger Mm because he was born in 04. (laughs) And then even Marie saying this. 25. Yeah. I don't have a big problem with, or she's, no, she's not, she's 35. Um, she's playing younger. She's playing 26. She, she's playing 26. She and yeah. I guess I believe it physically. A 26 year old doesn't behave like this, but that's neither here nor there. Um, we see him at his ad agency or leaving his ad agency with his assistant at the beginning. You know how he would, how he could stop all of this? Go to work. Well, Go he, to work. Make them come to you. Right. See that you are this other person. He's going to... Don't go to the places where you're supposed to be and call yourself by the so other name. the film is... I'm so... It's so... Okay, all so, he has to do is go to work. That's to, literally all so, he has to do. Should, we, should I go through the yes, film? Yes, well, I okay. mean, yes. And, sure. and again, you have to do this lightly because it's just like, there's a process of hurry, 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 then the, the set piece happens. He raises his hurry, hand hurry, at hurry. the wrong time. Yeah, he's in the hotel lobby. He, there's a George Kaplan being paged. And he raises his hand, and two of the thugs that we later learn are the murderous thugs that work for James Mason see him raising his hand when George Kaplan's name is called by complete coincidence and think that he's George Kaplan. Right. So then he's kidnapped. Their first attempt on his life is to try to drive him in liquor and put him in a car and run him off a cliff. Yes. And he manages to drunk drive his way into a police station. But it's better than drunk driving his way off of a cliff. What we learn about him is that he has a high tolerance for alcohol and... um, and a, and a self-preservation um, instinct that doesn't extend to all I have to do is go to work and prove that I'm who I say I am. Right. Rather than going to the places that I was told that this other person was supposed to be at and then calling myself by his name. Uh, mind you. It's so dumb. It's so the, car, the car rolling down the hill. Nearly. That was a good scene. That and was, the way that okay. it was shot was really good. And again, I'm going, thrilling, yes, sure. stupid, 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 thrilling, stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> so much stupid. So That's the thing, maybe. Right. You can't have a thrilling movie and have this man do anything smart. Right. Well, he is he is Cary Grant, but imagine if Cary Grant, uh, imagine, you. okay, here, here's a, a good way of putting it. Um, with minor changes in dialogue, you could have Rowan Atkinson. Yes. As Mr. Bean. Playing you don't even... Part. Yeah. You could just make him not say anything. <laughs> and he would make these same kind of errors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that... That's real. That is right. true. And that so, is upsetting, but it's true. So, yes. So he is on the run now. Uh, he's gone to the police. He's gone to the police. And for some reason, his mother... He, he tells him this story. His mom is the least helpful woman yes. that's ever existed. Because she really does... She's. Roger Thornhill makes a good deal of money, is what we're told to believe. Yes, of course. And he supports his wife, his two ex-wives, and several bartenders. Several bartenders, which and is a good line. there's some funny lines in yes. this film. That, that, that also. I also want to point out very quickly, uh-huh. I give not a fig for Cary Graham. I have no... Figs. I have no, like, warm, fuzzy feelings about mm. him from X, Y, and Z. I think he's fine looking. I know that's the big thing with him is he's so handsome. Okay. I don't, whatever. It's fine. He's been dead longer than I've been alive. But I don't think that's true. But um, actually, when did he die? Now I'm curious. No, um, not longer than he's alive. No, he died in 86. So mm, close. <laughs> but he is, and I don't know if this is a, a standard, like, I don't know if this is a standard character for him to play. Mm-hmm. But this smug asshole. That's really the only way I can say it. He's a smug dick who doesn't take anything seriously, including, apparently, his own goddamn life. Literally all he he knows where George Kaplan has been. Mm Because Mason gives him 
an itinerary, basically. You were here, 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 and here. You're here now, and this is where you're going to be in the future. So all you have to do is go to work. When they go to find you, have somebody, literally anybody that you work with, tell you where he actually was. You You can prove your whereabouts. I know you can. You choose not to. He does not. And and <laughs> his mother actually calls him on it. She's she's awful. You know, why yeah. don't you just pay the two dollar fine? And he's like, No, I was kidnapped. I they, love a two dollar drunk driving fine. That's wild. They poured liquor down my throat and he goes to the house and with the police and his mom for some reason. Yeah, why <laughs> and finds that uh, this house has been left vacant for all this uh, time. It's Well, he finds who says mm-hmm. she is the the wife of the woman or the man that he had seen right. James Mason, um, but we find out later that that is not true. Right. She's a housekeeper on the DL. So then from there, he, uh, goodness, what happens? Oh, yes, he goes to actually speak to the, the man who owns the house. He finds out that the man who owns the house works for the United Nations. Yes. He has him paged, which apparently paging is the, the death of people. In this yeah, room. stop stop answering pages. Which everybody. is why now everyone has a cell phone, I think. He's just stop calling for pages. And when this man is paged... He's immediately killed through a, a knife thrown in his back. From what angle, I don't know. And then um, this man, this the Thornhill. star of our film, the protagonist, grabs the knife like a fucking idiot. And here's how we know it's like an idiot. Because literally two minutes later, he's like, well, I can't go back. My prints are all over the knife. Right. So you knew that was an issue. Why did you touch the knife, it, sir? And then this begins a series of... Um, Borderline buffoonish adventures. Yes. Where he is, he meets Eve Marie Saint on a train who just absolutely throws herself at him. Yep. And I, I like Which is to... great because she is apparently a mistress for, like, like that's what she was, that's her, that's her well, occupation. She is playing a version of the character that Ingrid Bergman played in the last Hitchcock film with Cary Grant that we saw, which is Suspicion. Well, fair enough. No, no, excuse no. me. Notorious. Notorious. Yeah, I've never seen Suspicion. Suspicion. So. I don't know why. It just this movie makes me so bad. I did the Caligula lisp there. Suspicion. Suspicion. So, um. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, he meets her. She throws herself at him. I like her character because he's very, she's very aggressive. She yeah, knows what she wants. not aggressive. Not aggressive. Forward. Okay. Forward, yes. Yes. I, see, aggressive means something different. I think it's, uh, yeah. I feel like there's will... a tinge of lack of care for consent in the mm. word aggressive. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so forward Understood. makes me feel like, hey, I'm going to put what I want on Front Street. You are free to reciprocate or not, but I'm sorry. Have you seen me? Because right. I'm goddamn gorgeous. And they have a really <laughs> lovely scene on the train. Which is one of the more kind of erotically charged scenes I've yeah. seen in a Hitchcock film. And it's interesting because we know he's on the run. He's uh-huh. clearly being chased by police, and right. she like throws the police off her scent, off his scent right away. So we know that she's into dangerous dudes, <laughs> which also, turns out to be true. Yes, she's uh, the mistress of Van Damme, who's played by James Mason. He's the bad guy. He's guys. the bad guy. Who Even is though a... I, I contend that art protagonist is a bad guy well, uh, yes he's just a dog he's just he's not bad he's just the um james mason is our protagonist van damme and he has an assistant uh and perhaps an admirer i don't know exactly how to describe that relationship uh who's he only has one name leonard is here's a here's a question uh-huh. that may have nothing to do with anything is smithers and mr burns based on this i don't know it could be I mean, Mr. Burns is clearly way older, but mm. there is this weird homoerotic or homo-romantic, at least on one side, mm-hmm. um, and maybe being indulged on the other side, if not physically right. indulged. Appears, but, and that's what the one of the more interesting and complex relationships in this. This is going to sound really mean in this very shallow film. It's shallow, uh, which is that uh, Van Damme has this assistant who has feelings for him that he's not ex- that he has expressed and apparently Van Damme who is into dominating women as we see how frequently yeah. when we see oh, him later with Evil Saint he um, grabs the scruff of her neck yeah just has her like, has his hand on the back of her neck right all the time it's whether she's sitting or standing it's upsetting right and she it turns out so Evil Saint is with um, uh, or rather her character uh, which is Eve Kendall Eve yeah, she spends a night with uh, Roger Thornhill in her sleeper car and then helps him escape in the morning and gives him directions to where to meet the actual George Kaplan because she's proceeding on the idea that George Kaplan actually exists and he thinks for some... She's indulging his right. idea yes. that George Kaplan actually exists. Um, but she... she's also 
she sends a note to somebody that says, what do I do with them? Right. So and we, that yeah. somebody that she sends it to is um, a goon, a goon of Van Damme that we know is a goon right. of Van Damme. So that's that's how we find out that she's his uh, his mistress. Um, she sends him on a errand out into a field. She seems to be actually torn up about it. Her perform- I even already say it gives a really good performance in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, because she doesn't, like, she's developed some actual feelings for this person for whatever reasons. And she doesn't because feel... Because he's so handsome. But she doesn't feel good about sending him out to get no, killed. No, Is the other thing. Now that she's felt this connection with him, Oh, now he's going to... But she also is like, well, I can't... Right, and for a reason that we'll I am find literally out kept, and I will die. Um, because we get these scenes with Leo G. Carroll, who's uh, playing the head of the FBI. We don't, they don't actually say it's what it is. Some part of the alphabet soup. Yeah, because he literally is like FBI, CIA, uh-huh. and then ONI is the yes. other one that he says, and I had to look that up, and that's the Office of Naval Intelligence. Who knew? Um, which I think has a different name now. Or it was subsumed by mm-hmm. one of the others. But um, he says, you know, ba- we're basically all the same. He doesn't say what he is. But yeah, there's one weird disjointed scene uh-huh. in the middle of a bunch of Cary Grant scenes where it's just like, um, well, our fake our yeah. fake guy now is a real guy. So right. we're going to just let him die. So, <laughs> and, and it's like, wait, who? What's yeah. happening right and, now? And he's actually <laughs> called out by uh, by the others in the room, the, the, uh, the uh, Carol's character. Let's see, what's his name? Um, I don't know. I just the professor. The he just called yeah. the professor. The dude with glasses. The old dude with glasses. Uh, who, who did because, that? And that was his point, whole later career. Was playing just, the, the guy, Basil, uh, Basil Exposition. Oh, okay, That's yeah. His job. So, but it was confusing. Like, I didn't catch, and I don't know why I didn't catch this, but I think it was pretty roundabout. Uh-huh. In that original meeting between Underhill and Van Damme, I didn't understand what Kaplan was mm-hmm. to Van Damme. Right. And here we don't know that his, he's Van Damme. We'd find that out later. He's, he, right. gives the, he gives the UN officer's name. I didn't understand really up until that scene that Van Damme is a criminal mm-hmm. and that Kaplan is a quote-unquote agent mm-hmm. following him, like shadowing him. I didn't get any of that from that original meeting between the two of them because it just seemed like... Right. We know where you were. And he's like, I wasn't in any of those places. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Is right. Like, I thought they were rivals. I didn't think that he... Because wouldn't you also just straight up murder him in front well, of you? I mean, it's very much one of those, uh, the James Bond, I'm going to explain mm-hmm. my whole plot to you. Well, in this film, they do better than that. They don't, he doesn't, Van Damme doesn't actually explain the plot. He just wants to have him killed and make it look like an accident. And that's why they, they for the gin, is it? Is no, it? it's bourbon. Bourbon. There we go, bourbon. Yeah. Uh, I, I was like, I yum! Defer to bourbon or gin when I think that. Yeah. Well, because gin means all alcohols. Like in older mm. books and stuff, you only see gin, and gin is like Coke. Like it's just mm. the term for Pepsi liquor. Coke, yeah. Coke. Well, or just right. just a pop. Like it's right. it, anywhere you go, it's just Coke is the soda, right? Mm. Um, gin was that in uh, in England. So yeah. anytime you see, see liquor being <laughs> being referenced in. Anything written pre-1900 and maybe even later than that, liquor is referred to as gin. And it doesn't mm. mean it was gin. It means it was alcohol, okay. and that's what it was that alcohol. Makes sense. Um, since that's most of my so, reading. Yeah, exactly. So you default to gin. Um, this leads to another thrilling set piece where Thornhill is left, or takes a bus, he winds up in the middle of a field. If they say get off at stop 41, and he gets off at stop 41, and there is fucking nothing. Right. There is fields around him and mm-hmm. just a, a, a stretch of highway that goes as far as you can see in one direction and as far as you can see in the other direction and one little side road across the road from him. That's it. And I'm like, first of all, why is there a bus stop here? That's terrifying. And second of all, don't get off the... What is going to... If he doesn't show up or if he shows up with a weapon, you're so deeply fucked. Like, if I saw that <laughs> space and I was like, this is where he wants me to get off? Oh, nope. I'm going to continue on this bus. Well, as it turns out, he makes another terrible decision. Gets off the bus, he thinks he's meeting a man uh, who walks out of a cornfield, and it turns out not to be Kaplan. So while he's waiting there after this man's gotten on the bus, all by himself, he's hounded by an airplane, a crop duster, who then is shooting bullets at him and dropping whatever their load is yeah. on him to get him Yeah, it looked field. like a pesticide, some sort of chemical agent. And he, uh, Eve Marie Saint has very fond memories of that scene, because she goes, okay, this feels like I'm giving away a secret, but... After a while, the crop duster pilot was getting very low, and Cary Grant goes, okay. Well, that's the thing, too. Hitchcock did a lot of takes, right? right. And so he's going, uh, this is getting exhausting. I'm running, running. He's just, and he was, and he is full-bore running in, right. in this scene, yeah. We see him with his shirt off later on. He's very athletic, especially considering his age. 
But the idea that he felt like I could, he could feel the engine just nope. behind him. That's gonna be enough. He's like, I, I don't, I don't want to get my head. That's cut a off. real ass plane. Right. Yeah, no. That, that's not. A, so then they wind up moving it indoors and using a process screen and stuff like that because that pilot kept coming very close to him and yeah. he's going, "This is not." Because the pilot was like, "Hey, if I do it right, we won't have to do it again." Right. Not going um, off in <laughs> I will say too, or we should say that mm-hmm. already this man has gone to George Kaplan's room mm-hmm. and been seen by several people in the hotel. Whom he keeps telling he is George Kaplan. Right. And he tells me he's George Kaplan to get into the room, along with Mother, at one point. And then... Um, then he tells... Well, he doesn't tell her, her to get into the room. He gets into the room because his mom goes oh, and gets right. the key. He sends his mother to get Then the key. He, it's seen by the maid, who presumes he's George Kaplan because he's in this room. He's in George Kaplan's room. Then he calls for the um, I mean, the valet mm-hmm. and at, talks about George Kaplan. Says he, I mean, he just keeps telling people. And I'm like, how are you going to deny that you are a person that you keep saying that you are. Well, on top of that... Go to work. Well, be yeah, Roger okay, Thornhill. So, so, from there, he... Also, he never calls in. Is he super fired? Like, what's happening? The airplane uh, comes far too close, runs into a uh, gas tanker. Yeah. Because he, mm-hmm. he gets in the road and makes the truck stop. Right. Because he's like, I'm going to die out here. So he stands in front of a truck, which hits him... And then he goes under it, right. which is fucking wild. And then, but it's slowed down, so it doesn't. Mm. I guess it doesn't hurt him. Well, it or like hit he, him. he rolls underneath. He it. falls down. Right. No, it hits him. I, he maybe was supposed to lay down before right. it got to him. He didn't. It hit him. Uh, and then, yeah, the plane because it's coming at him again, right. runs into the side of this tra- tanker, and then you know the the trucker gets out and is like, "Run, because that other tank's gonna blow," and it does in fact blow because. You can't not have that explosion. Right. It's a gas tank or it's an oil thing. You know what? That's thrilling. Sure. Followed by <laughs> stealing the car, going and meeting Eve Marie Saint at or Eve at her hotel room. Um, she looks surprised to see him and also kind of conflicted about what to do next. She had yeah, because very, she was like, "Oh, I thought you were gonna be super she dead." She had a very adult conversation with him about how much she enjoyed whatever they had they had together. But it's like, you gotta now, go. I need to get out of my life. And she, during the scene, she's wearing the most stunning dress. Right. It's bananas how how she is dressed in what's interesting scene. is that Hitchcock did not like any of the dresses that they um put her the in? costume department was going to put her in mm. so he's and he's, she's wearing a full-on cocktail dress yeah so <laughs> the, the crazy part about we, we just did the birds not too long ago the difference in the way that some people the different experiences some people had with Hitchcock right. as opposed to others she said that was the most fun set that she'd worked on is that Cary Grant was really fun and charming funny and charming Cary Grant is a nice buffer, too, I think, right. probably. And that Hitchcock was really friendly with her. She said she had, uh, she mentioned two different kinds of directors. Mm-hmm. Elliot Kazan, who she worked with on On the Waterfront, she goes, would come up to you and whisper these really intense details about your character's inner life in okay. your ear before you shot a scene. Oh, interesting. Alfred Hitchcock, on the other hand, said, I've cast the best people. They know exactly what to do. There's a scene where uh, earlier in the film... That's how directors should always be. Right. Just let them do their job. Cary Grant walked into the lobby of the hotel where he gets a drink that scene. Yeah. He didn't even call for the take to start, and Cary Grant walked him through the scene and whatever. Didn't give, uh, Hitchcock didn't give him any direction. And one of the people on set said, uh, aren't you going to tell him what to do? He's like, no, he's done this a million times. He walks into rooms every day. Why do I need to tell him how to walk through a room? Yeah. Also, he walks into a room as Cary Grant every right. day. Like, he can pull off this dipshit. <laughs> so, apparently, the issue was he didn't like any of the costumes. He took Eva Marie Saint shopping. And they wound up sitting, like you see in old films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having the people come out and do the thing. Runway. Wow. She chose some dresses. He liked that one. He liked that one. They took them in, and that was her outfit. That was her, uh, yes. It's, this was dress a, is right. stunning. Yeah. But also, it's daytime outside. <laughs> this this dress has this low neckline, like, boat neckline in the front that mm-hmm. just goes to a deep V in the back. Right. And it is black and red. It is, and it's T-length. It has the big puffy skirt that they had in the 50s. I'm such a fan of this dress, but I'm like, ma'am, where are you going? That is a party dress. That is a date dress. It is light outside. And as it turns out, she... What did we watch earlier that had... Oh, it was the um, the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. She's just wearing, like, night dresses in the date. <laughs> it turns out she uh, gets his suit cleaned because at this point mm-hmm. it's it has pesticides yes. and God knows what on it. And he got hit by a truck. (laughs) He's in the shower. She. um, He says he's going to take a shower, and he starts whistling. She leaves. She she is going to um, an auction, which I guess is why she's so dressed up. You got to look like you can afford some shit, right? And a very expensive (laughs) auction. 
Uh, and that's where um, I did like this scene actually. Roger, this like, is one of the funnier scenes. This is this is the this is the dipshit just coming. I don't think it's smart. Well, his what he but does, he he cleverly gets out right. of something. Right. So he goes, he follows her. He's madly in love with her at this point. He's really angry and upset when he sees her with because Rondon. the smart thing would have been to see them uh-huh. and then get the right. fuck out, not go up and confront them in front he of everyone. Madame, he confronts her. There's a lot of mean things that he says to her, but not knowing, of course, that... Because now he has the opinion that she set him up to, to be killed, which she did, but not willingly, as we find out later on. Um, he is surrounded by Vandam's henchmen, so he sits down during the auction bidding and just starts putting out these wild accusations that the, the material that they're selling is fakes. He puts out bids of, like, you know, we're going to the bids of twenty or $30,000, and he's like, thirteen fifty. He really gets himself arrested so that he has to be escorted out of the building. Um, and this is where you find out what the plot is, because you meet uh, the professor. Yeah, then he scoops him. And the professor explains to him, you know, you have a choice to either go back to your life as Roger Thornhill, or um, you get to uh, stay with us for another 24 hours and save your country, because inside the belly of the pre-Columbian statue or whatever Well, we was, don't know that, that until the end, but... That yeah. uh, that Van Damme's purchase is microfilm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's told Van Damme is an importer exporter, mm-hmm. and when Car- or when Thornhill says of what he's like, uh, or of like, mm-hmm. you know, diamonds or you know whatever it was money, he says, uh, state secrets. <laughs> right. So and he's a spy. Not only is Eve Kendall his mistress, she is the agent yep. that George Kaplan was created. Yeah. To, and that's Did we a, explicitly say. George Kaplan does not exist. Right. George yeah, Kaplan is a right. dummy figure. Nobody's ever seen him because he's not real. Right. They just book shit for him and then put stuff inside of a room and then nobody ever sees him because he doesn't right. exist. And so the, that's meant to distract Wandan's attention because his mistress is the actual informant who right. is leaking information to these the Alphabet Soup organization. Or whatever. Right, and we do find out that she, because she was... She was involved with him. Mm-hmm. Realized what he was, like that he was dangerous and right. that he was a you know spy, um, and then was recruited by this organization mm-hmm. rather than she was sent in no, to yeah, infiltrate. That wasn't that wasn't the situation. So to call her an agent is a little well. She's working as an agent. Yes, now and she, she um, well, I still think they call her like an informant. <laughs> She's trying to bring, she's very, uh, again, I have to emphasize this, she's very similar to um, Ingrid Bergman's character in Notorious, in that she was sort of like the party girl who winds up, oh, wait, there's something wrong, I have to stand up for what's right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and that becomes part of her story. Now, what the professor is offering Thornhill is, if you can help us for another day, you can get her out of this mess, because now that you've announced your feelings and that she's responded in some way, Van Damme is just as likely to kill her because he's possessive, as yeah. we've seen by his constantly grabbing her by the scruff of her neck. Scruff of her neck. It's so um, And that was interesting because that parallels the earlier scene with the two characters, Thornhill and uh, Kendall, when they're rolling around the walls, the train. Yeah. And they're just very tenderly touching each other. And you're supposed to compare that to yeah. the she, scene. Is it him that like holds the back of her head in a weird they way, They hold though? each other that way. Yeah. Like, it's, and it's, but it's, it he's is trying awkward. To hold her, it's awkward. And they're like against the wall of the train and it's swaying apparently and so oh, he, yeah, keeps, maybe. he keeps like covering the back of her head so she doesn't hit her head oh that's what it is so because i they just like there were some right. close-ups on his hands on the back of her head and i was like yeah which was here's the thing too uh, like and maybe this wasn't true in 1959 but a man's hand on the back of a woman's head mm-hmm. conjures some well it does now obnoxious I mean, behavior at, at the time i don't i doubt that it yeah, did then at but the time like, then it's like he's trying to he's like being so gentle he's trying to protect he doesn't her. want to hurt her which is the contrast with Van Damme literally just sort of grabbing her, her like yeah. you'd grab a dog that you were trying yeah, to stop, yeah. um, stop from getting away from you. But uh, yeah, so now that he realizes that he's put her at risk, they arrange for a meeting because Van Damme for some reason has a, a secret airport runway or a helipad or something on top of Mount Rushmore. Yeah, he's got, a, he's got definitely got a villain compound. Right. And this again... This is the film. They don't know that, like, before that, mm-hmm. he gets shot by her, sort of. Well, yes. But what I'm saying is this is the film <laughs> oh, that yeah, I see. informed, uh, and I told you that, the Bond franchise. 
once yeah. they saw that this film could be done, yeah. then because before that the notion was we can't do James Bond as a uh, a film that it had been at this point a book and it had been a comic strip series, it had been radio shows I think at one point, and they were considering moving it to television, but because they thought we we can't this is ridiculous, no one's going to get this sort of jumping from country to country, yeah, and yeah, whatever, and it's like this film actually proved that you could get away with it and people wouldn't mind so much, right, and then it went from James Bond to. Indiana Jones, right. and also to the Bourne stories. It's like, Which is crazy, because Indiana Jones also harkens back to pre, or right. certainly pre-this. But that whole notion of we're jumping from one adventure to another, yeah. to another, to yeah. another, and it also... And then Fast and the Furious. Right. <laughs> I mean, if, that sh- if those mm-hmm. movies aren't set piece after set piece, then right. I don't know what the fuck it is. Right, and, and very early in, in his career, Hitchcock was doing movies like The Foreign Correspondent, or Foreign Correspondent, he did an adaptation of John Buchan's 39 Steps, which was the ultimate... Guy on the run, having adventures as, uh, and in that play, in that case, the government, uh, the villains in that book, because I love the book. You have no idea what their motivations are. They're just out to kill him. Yeah, right. And, We're bad. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so you're by the end of the story, you still don't know what the villains are up to. Like, why are they trying to kill him? I mean, whatever. Anyhow, although in that case, that character is uh, more, much more resourceful, and he's a soldier, so he knows how to take care of himself, as opposed to. Roger Thornhill. But anyhow. Yeah, woof. So Thornhill um, allows himself to be shot by E. Kendall in a public place. Yeah, they set up a thing where he, um, he, he confront her. He confronts first Van Damme and insists that Kendall has to be there. Oh, that's right. And um, then... she prov- He provokes her. Right. And she shoots him. Right. And then runs away. And so that's supposed to secure her uh, faithfulness in Van Damme's opinion. Now, Eve and Thornhill are brought together for one last meeting, which again was added later in the, the, the film, because they realized there wasn't another time for them to communicate and express any kind of uh, feelings for each other. Um, they express how much they care about each other and all, but she's about to go off on this mission and he is going to return to his workaday world. He's taken to a hospital, he's, you know, he's uh, allowed to rest and all. And then... It. I'm not sure exactly what the how he finds out that. Um, oh no, he just takes off right out of his hospital room, to cause, yeah yeah he just runs away. He says um, he gets close and then he says, "Hey, uh, let's drink." Mm-hmm. And the he goes, I think he says uh, a pint of bourbon because he's like, "I'm in." Like he switches real quick, and mm-hmm. I'm like, "Well, clearly he's not." And he's like, now, like, let's drink. I, uh, get me some bourbon. Or he, I think the other one says, I can get you some bourbon. He goes, yeah, a pint will do. He's like, I think I might join you. And he goes, well, you better get a court. Yes. And then he, like, tries to get out. Uh, it's locked at first, so I can't remember how he gets he out exactly. He window. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, that's right. He gets window. There's a kind of cute exchange where he calls him to another that's window. That's right, into hospital. another hospital and room where the woman is like, <gasps> and then like, ooh. Well, she, Stop, <laughs> wait. And he's like, shh tries to be past her, and she puts on her glasses and sees him, and she goes, stop, wait. Like, it's, it's actually kind of funny. And he's like, wait, no, no, like, you're not going to distract me. I have to, I have to go rescue a woman. And, um, and then he go, there's a, a whole final set piece where he creeps around, uh, gets to the uh, house that Van Damme has, for some reason, above Mount Rushmore, he, which I still can't get over. <laughs> How did you get a house? He tries to warn um, through using his, uh, his person. That's, again... I'm like, how douchey is this guy? He has a personalized matchbook, right? R-O-T. Rot. And she says, what does the O stand for? And he says, nothing, because it's not real. <laughs> Which is kind of the whole gist of the film, is that he keeps lying compulsively um, from the very beginning to get it. First to get a cab for his secretary, Just that sec- lying to his the mother. The secretary was clearly, like, tied to him. Mm-hmm. Where's she? Yeah, uh, she disappears. It's played by the same actress, I don't remember her name, who um, was the woman confronting Tippi Hedren in the... the That's right. In the... Um, the birds. Birds, in the diner, that Tippi Hedren does a Will Smith on her face and just, like, slaps her around. But, Let's not. Um, <laughs> Let's not do that. But, um, <laughs> so, there's a, a confrontation with um, Martin Landau, or Mar- uh, what's it, Leonard? Leonard and Van Damme, where... Leonard has fished out the gun that Eve used to shoot Thornhill. Yep. Pretends to shoot. Well, says, like, gun. pulls him out and he's like, mm. you can't trust her, and then pulls out the gun and shoots him. Doesn't pretend to shoot him, right. but shoots him. Except, like. Right, so then Van Damme knows that this woman betrayed him after she, he decks Leonard. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> like, you don't get to just shoot at me. That's not, we're not doing that. And then as he's um, trying, as Van Damme leads Eve away, with Eva away, with the, or no, it's Eve. It's Eve, yeah. With the intention of dropping her somewhere over the Pacific. Uh, she's rescued by Roger. They both get together, they drive off, and then comes this whole chase around uh, a large set and some matte paintings that will be Mount Rushmore. Apparently, they were not allowed to film there, even though well, they were actually Russia? in South Dakota at the time. That's funny. But yeah, no, that's that a... far. And what happened is that at that point, when they actually had moved the whole crew out there, apparently, um, they were told by the forestry people that, you can't do that. This is a national landmark. And they wanted changes in the script. Well, you can run around those. As long as you don't run on... on you don't get to run on their faces. They but they faces. want to run on their faces. And then the second thing was, well, well, you can't have anybody die. This is a national monument. They'll think it's unsafe. Well, you don't want anybody climbing on it. So it seems like somebody dying right. because they climbed on it is a good deterrent right. to have people climb on it, guys. So Hitchcock was facing... Dumb ways to die. <laughs> he was so irritated by the constant interference from the Park Service telling him what he could and what he couldn't do and the restrictions and the, the, the uh, moving the goalposts in terms of Okay, oh, no, no, you're going to do that here? Well, we can't do that. Yeah, I can't think that he would... Uh... We're all going to go back to Hollywood, and we're going to create Mount Rushmore there. So there's a long chase there. And uh, in this case, Leonard is the real villain. Um, or rather, the henchman becomes he's towards the, the forefront. Yeah, because yeah. uh, Mason's not climbing on the skin. <laughs> he's far too sophisticated yeah. to be climbing on these rocks. And uh, But also, we should say, she's wearing... Heels, she's wearing heels, and he's wearing brand new dress shoes that he got an hour ago. Yeah, they would fall to their death. To their credit, her heel snaps, and that's why she's dangling at one point from his hand. Well, yeah, he's her heel on. snaps. She would have fallen before that, though. Bonehill, for some reason, asks for help from Leonard, who then goes and steps on his hand. Yeah. And then and she's sh- like, right. he wants both of you dead, so I don't know why. Why would he... S- I think he was literally like, look how beautiful she is. We can't let her die. And Leonard's like, not my type. Right. Smoosh. <laughs> And then Leonard is shot by uh, the professor's gathered police. There's like a whole... Possibly park rangers. I don't just know. A, just a cadre of people up on the hill just <laughs> the watching this Everyone happen. And the then we're like, I think it's time. And then, yeah. And he's pulling her up. And she's like, I can't make it. And he's pulling her. And then uh, fucking yeah. smash cut to them being in a train and her being in a white dress. And I guess he pulled her up. He and then they got Mrs. Thornhill. Yeah. Uh, and then they... Roll off into the, the uh, they roll into bed, is what they, they roll into bed. They and roll into a train film. bed because he's, you know, nostalgic for when they met. And then mm-hmm. that's the end of the movie. It's so abrupt. It's really, and that's basically because how do we get them off the mountain? I don't know. Let's just do this instead. And again, yeah, we don't. It is a, it's just so it's, dumb. Okay, so I'm guessing from your reaction that you don't like this film. Uh, I like the gumption. I like that he was like, let's do all of the thrills. I don't like the main character. Mm-hmm. I don't like the terrible decisions that the main character made. Because it just doesn't make any sense. I'm like, this is a grown man with a job. <laughs> and he is so deeply stupid. <laughs> I'm just like, and again, how are you still alive? I'm not a huge Cary Grant fan, but I have to say in his defense, this is what he had to work with. <sighs> and yes. it, it was really the fault of the screenwriter, the director, just, just trying to make it up. But she is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mason is always right. fully watchable. But yeah, just because it is held together by spit and a dream, right. I just, it's exhausting to me. Yeah, it's, I find it. Because I'm just like, all you have to do is not that. Right. All you have to do is not I what you're doing right now. I find it interesting in that it is, there's a lot of kind of witty lines to the film. Um, there's, but that's one of the problems as well, because there's so many throwaway liner, one-liners in this movie that it's hard to take his situation seriously. Um, there's a scene where Cary Grant and Eve Marie Saint are hanging by their fingertips from Mount Rushmore, some part of the... I, I don't even know. It's so close. The anatomy is so close up. I don't know what part of the... Yeah, you, you, you can't really from. tell. And uh, and the part of the anatomy is no part because it's on set. <laughs> right. But um, I think they just have him, big gray. <laughs> she asked him why he, why he divorced his first two wives, and he said, well, they said I lived too dull a life. 
That's right. And so there's some Which really, definitely is not, yeah. Right. There's some funny lines. He but they says some funny things. He does. attention out of the movie because it's, that's the wrong time to crack a line. I'll give you a good example. A, a really good example. Jurassic Park 2. Yeah. When. The Lost World? Uh, that one? Yes. Okay. When uh, there's a Trinosaurus, he's pushed this huge kind of RV vehicle thing over the edge of a cliff and uh-huh. these people are hanging above certain death. And uh, I forget which character pops ahead and asks if he can get them something. They're like a mac, a mac and cheese, or a, cheese, a Big Mac and a cheese. I'll have a some nonsense, yeah. Some, and like, it's like, well, then I don't believe these people are in any danger, right? At all, yeah. And it's it's um, I think that it just takes you out of it when that happens. Yeah, I, I think that um, like in the Bond films, at least during Sean Connery's reign of it. Like you saw in Goldfinger, he'll say the line until after something happens. Yeah. He doesn't say something goofy while it's while happening. Well, it's happening, right, or before, or before yeah. So it's not like you have a big laugh. In other words, the laugh is, meant, is supposed to happen afterwards, so it's like, whew, oh, we got through that one. Yeah, or you say to diffuse tension. Right. But not when a gun is pointed at you or whatever, right? right? A good example of that would be the hunting, uh, the, the 1961 hunting. Yeah. When, uh, when Russ Hamlin, hearing the, the beating outside the door, the poltergeist turns to the professor and says, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you the house for cheap. <laughs> it's funny, right? Because... <laughs> At this point, but that is an appropriate right, time to say really that. Yeah, up and you don't like wait, wait. This is too much to deal with. Yeah, but no, it it's... feels a lot of the time like Cary Grant is just sort of let run to do all sorts of goofy routines. When he shows up drunk at the police department, he keeps trying to fall asleep on the table. Yeah, um, I'm just like, and it just goes on for. I a while. understand that it's 1959, police. Mm-hmm. It's a small town, and he's white, but like. Right. I feel like a nightstick's getting involved at some point in the, with his behavior because that's the other thing. He, he is. Presumably in mortal danger for this entire film, and he knows it, right. and is still acting like he can do whatever the fuck he wants and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, you're either worried about this, right. or you're not. You can't be worried about it and act like you're not. Well, I think, I mean, you could be nonchalant about a thing. Right. That's not what's happening. The difference here. between this and a film like, a friend's or the the film in the book, Thirty Nine Steps. That character, Richard Hannay, is a trained to do this. He's a soldier. Uh, and he's bored, he's an adventurer as well, B, he is compelled to be put into the situation. He can't help it. You know, the guy who gave him the information or you know, gives him a, literally gives him a book and goes, this is the, the facts and figures of where the 39 steps are, and then he's probably killed. And so now he's on the run. I don't so, know this story. Right, but I mean, the point <laughs> okay. is that here, as you're saying, at any point after the initial arrest, Roger Thornhill could just go back to work. Instead, it's it's, work. you have a, an ad executive Right, not an agent, not an adventurer, not a soldier, nothing. He has no training for this at all. Who just keeps stumbling in from adventure into adventure. He plays detective at one point by his plays, own right idiocy. He's doing this himself. <laughs> yeah, and so it's the steps that he takes when he plays, you know, middle-aged boy detective, and tries to solve the crime of who's George Kaplan. Right. That that I, leap is ridiculous, and it just keeps taking leaps like that. And it's that not after. even like you, you could try mm-hmm. and figure it out, but you do it from your office, right? And you don't at any point say that you are the person you are trying right. not to be, or trying to prove that yeah. you are. But yeah, the point why like the, you've the, now made yourself and just like the dude right. says in that weird cutaway, our our um, with our invisible, right? You know, decoy has become a real decoy. Great. <laughs> I think that there's. There's a very kind of 50s mentality to it. The film was originally supposed to star Jimmy Stewart. Um, I feel like that would have been better. But because I feel like he would have been like, this is dumb. We need to come up with stronger reasons that this character right. is doing and I a think thing. Cary Grant was sort of in for the romp. He yeah, was having a good time. I guess time. so. And up until the plane got real close to right. it. Like, <laughs> Which is really ease up, motherfucker. On top of that, there's also like just odd mistakes in the film. Like the fact that at one point the cop duster lowers its payload on top of him and he gets and it drops all over him and then he climbs out of the field and his suit has very has he's got like one little dusty up on his shoulder and one hitting, on his leg that's from hitting the ground when the airplane oh okay so yeah the actual cop dust was not on him and Ernest Lehman points it out to Hitchcock and he goes well it's too you know we can't change it now we're on this tight 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 schedule we did make him buzz him like 16 right. times but we're not going to fix this one thing yeah we can't go back for that and and it would make Get any sense you so. a script supervisor and keep this but it was just sort of at times feeling very rushed and made up on this as it went along just like this character is right. doing yeah I so just, that, that's it's the just frustrating so wait so is the film thrilling or not Scenes of it were thrilling, mm-hmm. but here's something that I need to be thrilled. Right. I need to care whether this character lives or dies. And uh, at a certain point, right. I was like, 
you've done this to yourself. I hope she lives, but I don't care about you. Like, that's literally Well, I think maybe I'm that's at. the reason why at some, at midway through the film, it doesn't become about clearing his name or anything. It becomes about saving her. Yeah. Because Because I can't care about you anymore. Yes, you just make stupid decisions. And I think at one point in this process, Lehman and Hitchcock came up with the idea of, okay, we have to transfer this because once he gets picked up by the organization, yeah. uh, then there's no reason why he should go on being pursued by yeah. Van Damme and these other people. Right. Right? So then we have to make the story about her now. Yeah. And she's an interesting character. She should get her own she film. She is. And she's so good. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that Mason, Eve, mm -hmm. um, and her getting um, yeah. pulled over into to being a double agent, that's a, that's a story I want to watch. But that's also notorious. It's the same, yeah. I suppose so, yeah. He's doing a, that was a much more serious take with a much more serious Cary Grant. Yeah, right? that's And true. so th that, that's kind of the problem. This was a movie that was made, uh, Hitchcock told Lehman at one point, that at one point, at some point in the future, let's say, that we're just going to make a machine that puts images directly into people's brains and we just press a key and they'll feel sad and we press a key and they'll feel thrilled. And, and that's so much, true and it bugs Right. He saw the future of filmmaking based oh. on this movie going, if we just have to do this for the audience with no coherence or logic to it and people enjoy it this much, then maybe this is the future of filmmaking. See, I, can't, I guess I can't. You're right. I and just can't. I, it's, it's, it's become what the least, you see it in the less... Um, I don't want to see less successful because there's reasons for their lack of success, but some of the less ambitious uh, Marvel movies or DC films for that matter, the superhero films that yeah. are just like, you know, you have a scene that everyone expects to see and then you have a scene that's sort of like nostalgia about Superman. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And it's just scene after scene of like spectacular things that happen for no particular reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't need to like the characters, mm -hmm. but I do need to care what happens to right. them. Whether it's, goddamn, I hope he dies. Right. Or, oh, I, gotta, I hope that he makes it out of this. Yeah. It can't be if he dies, it's his own damn fault, so whatever. Well, like, yes. that's not... I'll, I'll tell you this. Not only do I feel that Mr. Bean, or Atkinson yeah. playing Bean, can play this part. Yeah. I that also would kind feel of be like amazing. That... <laughs> I kind of want to say idea. that. And I don't um, like Mr. Bean at all. Is that he, he should win some special prize, like the Darwin Award, Mr. Thornhill, for... Just the number of times he actively pursues dying. Death. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I want to die horribly. He's like Mr. Magoo. Right. It's, but like, but Mr. Mr. Magoo, Magoo couldn't see what he was doing. Right. This dude is fully... He has fully... all functioning body parts and, and a ridiculous tan. I, I have to say, his I admire his tan. <laughs> and the fact that it was full body. Right. What? You're made out of leather, sir. <laughs> You're going to get skin cancer. Stop it. He made it to 86, so... But like, uh, goddamn. Yeah. All right. All right. That's so, that movie. Okay, there we go. Next week, we're going to watch The Thing You've Been Dreading, right. which I totally thought you'd already seen, but you haven't. It's... It's The Exorcist, everyone. It's The, the Exorcist. Exorcist. I... Our post-Christmas, pre-New yeah. Year's episode is The Exorcist. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> he's good with it. He's, he's if he good. wasn't good with it, the movie wouldn't exist anymore. Me. I mean, that's like his thing. Um, but I just feel like, uh, yeah, okay. I, you know what? I got you, you sat there and watched Clockwork Orange. I did. And, and I so hated I it. I can sit here and watch this. El Exorcist. Yes. This movie. <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to recommend? I do have something I want to recommend. It's a book series, and soon it's going to be a TV series. And it's called The Murderbot Diaries, <laughs> which sounds silly, and it kind of is. But it's really fun. So I have Amazon. Nope, I have Audible. <laughs> you have which both, I believe right? is a, an Amazon product at mm -hmm. this point. So I've been looking for free things. I mean, I have credits, but I'm looking for free things too because I've been listening to a lot of narrative, which is strange for me, but that's fine. I've been doing a lot of tasks that don't require right. my brain so I can focus on a story. Normally, if I'm working, I can't listen to a story because I lose track of what's happening. And I can just listen to But I can just listen to a podcast of dudes talking to each other. But I've been... Wanting narratives, and I've been sleeping to them too, or like going to sleep to them. So, uh, I think I saw something recently that was like, "Hey, they're making this into oh, on one of my my uh, groups, um, they said they're making this into a movie and I or a TV show on Apple, and I really enjoy it. And then a bunch of people really enjoyed it, and it had been showing up for me on my Audible thing as like, "Hey, this is a thing you might like." Because one of the things that I Google or like that I search is like, um techno sci-fi mm -hmm. or futuristic tech stuff 
So I like hard science fiction. And this one kept coming up, and I was like, I don't know, the title of it is, or the picture of it was not doing it for me. But then I heard that, and I started with the first book, which is All Systems Red, R-E-D. And as soon as it started, I was like, ooh, I like this. <laughs> so it's it's largely, well, it's diaries. Mm-hmm. So it's a person telling a story, and a lot of times it breaks that fourth wall because they're writing, they know they're writing to something, right, or, or talking to something, of a... They're called a sec, it's a sec unit, security Mm -hmm. unit. He's a largely, like, he is like a cyborg, but like not a human first or not a robot first. He's a combination of the two. And there's like, there's supposed to be like a governor, um, that sort of like, like a shot caller almost. (laughs) Like it keeps them from becoming Mm. murder bots. But he overrode his, and he... That's like, not good. Well, it opens with, I could have become a mass murderer after I had hacked my governor module, but then I realized I could access the combined feed of entertainment channels carried on the company satellites. It had been well over 35,000 hours or so since then, with still not much murdering, but I, but probably, I don't know, a little under 35,000 hours of movies, serials, books, plays, and music consumed. As a heartless killing machine, I was a terrible failure. <laughs> so, like, that's how it starts. Um... He's real into, like, soap operas and mm. shit, so he is real into watching these dramatized human things, but then he doesn't, he, he's an analog of an autistic, like, mm. he doesn't like eye contact, he gets very uncomfortable if people see him as a person, like, because he's, he wears this suit with a helmet that's, like, opaqued out 99% of the time, mm. and, but he has a human, like, he looks like a person inside of that. But when people want to treat him like a person, it makes him extremely uncomfortable. And all he wants to do is watch his stories. <laughs> and so he turned to a grandma? Yes, but that can kill mm. and is good at security. But he like he gets super frustrated at humans, but like he's watched 35,000 hours of human media. So he also, because and he knows that people in media and people in real life are different. Like they're not the same, but like... When he sees people do good, he's like, "Oh, they're like this." Like, oh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah. so he starts actually getting relation, making relationships with some people and some other tech, some other you know bots and things like that. This is the future, right? It's sci-fi, but the character, the voice of it is really mm. fun. And like, he'll say something, be like, "Yeah, I know how that sounds." <laughs> like, it's that kind of a thing. Mm. Um, it's three, like, it's. It's four, the first four stories are novellas. They're not very long. I think they're like three hours in the in read time. I like novellas, per. by the way. And then I think four through seven, I think it's, I think it's four through seven, are full-length novels. I don't know. They're, they've cast, and I think it's really good casting. Uh, Apple TV is doing a television show based mm. on this. It's going to be ten, 10 episodes. I think my guess is that it's the, the first four novellas because mm-hmm. it's that's an arc right. there's a there's a full story that is that each one stands alone but it wouldn't surprise me if they did all four in a 10 episode thing alexander scarcard is who they've cast and i think it's a really good mm. it's a good cast hmm. a lot of people are like that is who i was picturing in my head i picture zachary kinto but that's only because the dude's voice that reads these books sounds to me like zachary quinto and not like, he's a really good voice actor, mm-hmm. but I literally just listened to Zachary, Zachary Quinto read a bunch of, okay. um, read another series of stories that I was, that I really enjoyed, and their voices are similar enough <laughs> that that is who I'm picturing. But I think Starsguard is a really good um, person to read it. So right now, if you have an Audible subscription, the first four stories are free, mm. so I recommend giving them a try because they're really fun. If not, I will bring it up when it comes out on Apple TV in six years or whatever it's going to be. There's no date on it. There's just, they've just announced that they are doing it and that they've cast the main character. But yeah, so they're called The Murder Bot Diaries. They're by Martha Wells, who is, uh, and they've won Hugo and Nebula Awards. Like they, they're well received and Goodreads um, reviews are very high as well. So, Murder Bot. Murder Bot. We love him. I decided to recommend something for my Audible listings too. Oh, wow. Uh, I, uh, let me find it really quickly because I'm not finding the title in here. Oh, I bet I know because our, our, turns out our, uh, because I put you on my, like, friends on Prime, mm-hmm. whenever you do something, I can see it and I can hear it. <laughs> like, oh, okay. um, it shows up in my library. 
I don't put a lot of the stuff I listen to in my library. I forget. I need to start doing that. Um, but yeah, so that's why we were reading the same thing because right. they would show up in my library, and I'd be like, "Oh, I want to read that too." I was. I, I write ghost stories. I'm working on the second book, uh, collection of short stories and the novella, right? So I've been recommended by my lovely friend across the table that I should be reading more modern authors because my tastes run to Arthur Macon and, uh, oh, H.G. Wells, and mostly M.R. James, yeah, right? And Algernon Blackwood, all these people who wrote quite a long time ago. So long. So I, uh, I kept having these interactions on Facebook with an author named Ramsey Campbell who has been doing this for a very, very long time. He's acknowledged, been acknowledged by people like Clive Barker and Stephen King. By doing this, you mean writing? Writing okay. horror stories. Okay. Guillermo del Toro thinks he's an uh, unacknowledged master. Uh, so when I kept reading, reading these wonderful things and having these interactions where we like the same things on Facebook, I decided to start having a conversation with him. So I asked him to recommend, well, what, what would you recommend for a person starting out? His body of work goes back to 1976. Um, with a book with a title that I really love, The Doll Who Ate His Mother. <laughs> that's, that's a good title, right? but I'm upset. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I listened to, uh, right now I'm listening to a story of his called The Influence. And uh, I finished another book called his, uh, uh, The Wise Friend. And it's, uh, I don't want to spoil anything because it, it starts out, The Wise Friend starts out, which I finished, is almost like a domestic story about a divorced dad and his son gets a new girlfriend and then it goes on this other weird direction hmm. about, you know, and I don't want to spoil anything, but by the end of the book, we're talking about uh, familiars and evil spirits. and Stop, you always say more than you think you're going to. All sorts of really bizarre and strange things and weird encounters. And the story of reading influences about a person reaching from beyond the grave. It's interesting in that, and I, and I actually wrote him to talk to him. We had a couple of exchanges online about it, uh, that his gift seems to be that he humanizes people. Or in horror fiction, you often get ciphers or you get people who are stereotypes. And here he's making these people, real, unlike Roger Thornhill, realistic enough to where you actually worry, is this person going to suffer from this, you know, this encounter with the other side? Yeah. And it is really interesting reading. And, uh, yeah, we've had a couple of exchanges online and we're friends on Facebook now. Nice. But uh, it's really neat just talking to somebody who's doing the same thing going, oh, because I asked him at one point, like, how did you do this? How did you have this amazing body of work? He's like, I've been doing this for 60 years. It's just gone on and on and on and on. So he's an interesting author. Uh, I would recommend actually getting an audiobook or sitting down and reading a real book. And he, he's gone through several phases of his work. He went through a Lovecraft phase, then he put the Lovecraft phase behind him, and he went on to something else. And, and now he's working at doing a sort of a peculiar kind of horror that I like, which is a sort of an updating of the traditional ghost story themes. So that's pretty cool. Read a ghost story. That's what you should do for just before Christmas, because that's when you're supposed to read them, Christmas Eve. I finished another one um, by Michelle Paper not too long ago, and that was also a recent ghost story. Recent? You never read anything that was written after you were born. Well, yeah, and so I'm Except doing now it now. you are. <laughs> and Michelle, that, that's an interesting story because it's a story about Arctic exploration and haunted spaces and a character coming to terms with their, their sexuality, mm -hmm. which was also interesting and unexpected because you don't often get a queer-friendly horror story. Um, Unless you're listening to Clive Barker. And then you, uh, yeah, there was that. There was another book called Dolly by Susan Hill, who also wrote The Woman in Black. That's a good novella to start with. And that is, is every bit as horrible as, think of The Woman in Black and think about the title Dolly, and that it becomes that horrible. So, yes, ghost stories for Christmas. Ghost stories for Christmas. I will put all of those names in the show. Okay. Next week, a ghost story for Christmas. Mm. A demon story for Christmas. <laughs> gonna watch the exorcist be yeah. brave watch it with us uh, yeah. i've never seen it i don't know what i'm saying uh until then if you have questions or comments or concerns we my question and concern is what we're going to do next but we'll see it's a surprise um for everyone and uh you can email us if you have questions or comments or concerns at latecomerspod at gmail.com or you can find us on facebook that end <laughs> <laughs> We wish you a happy holiday, mm -hmm. a Merry Christmas. Um, please give thoughts to Palestine because Jesus was a Palestinian Jew and his home is being relentlessly bombed. Amen. That's where I'm going to leave that. I would like to remind you to please, please take your medicine, especially because this can be a hard time of year. We remind you 
better late than never.